Hello, this is William Fink of ChrisTheGillian.org. Today is Friday, September 23rd, 2016. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This week I spent a couple of days revamping the streaming radio at Christagenia. It, it's a lot more modern now. The software that we had um, been using the last six years was obsolete probably about three years ago, four years ago. I, um, I'd been putting off doing it because it's a, well, well, it's a major technical task. It took two full days to redo the four streams for me to wrap my head around using more modern software and learning the scripting language so that I could automate the streams. And now it's really cool. I could cut in on the rerun programs when I want. It's easier to change the schedules and it doesn't take a whole lot of, um, engineering on a server, scripts on a server, to shut the software off when it's reruns and turn it back on when it's live and shut it off again. That was always a a hassle and, and that's no longer necessary. And now I could cut in on my <laughs> cut in on my reruns with a live stream practically any time I want and when I hang up well, when I disconnect from my streams from my home computer, it'll automatically cut back over to the reruns at the point where it was interrupted, which is pretty cool, I think. So we've um, we've taken a large step in modernizing that, I think, and that'll help in going into the future. Hopefully we'll be able to expand our live programming, I pray, to other like-minded Christian identity pastors at some point in the future. That's something I've always had in mind, and taking this step is going to facilitate that next step in the event that it happens. I can't guarantee that it's going to happen, but I would like it to, because I would like to um, offer other like-minded individuals the opportunity to do what I'm doing here this evening on their own schedule. Tonight we are going to present part four of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, and this is subtitled, The Day of Rest. Many Christian students of scripture have long realized that the accounts in the Bible contain types, and we'll explain those momentarily, types and allegories throughout both the historical and the prophetic writings if we may break all scripture down into those two categories. And I believe that we could, because even the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and even the Song of Solomon are prophetic writings in their own way, even if to the shallow-minded or the shallow student or shallow casual reader of scripture, they don't seem like prophetic writings, they certainly are. However, in the Bible, the lines between history and prophecy are not always clear. Because sometimes prophecy presents things which had occurred in the past rather than things which shall occur in the future. Moses was one such prophet who presented prophecies describing events from both the past and the future while also recording historical events from his own time. When Moses wrote of the past, his inspiration was not from any 
recorded histories, but from Yahweh his God. In that same manner through the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh had challenged the idolaters, as it is written in Isaiah chapter 41, where the word of God says, Let them bring them forth, and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be that we may consider them, and know the later end of them, or declare us things for to come. The idea that you don't know where you're going until you know where you came from is right there in Isaiah chapter 41. And Yahweh God showed us the former things through Moses, as well as some of the things that would come. So here in his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul draws on facets of the accounts of the lives of David, Solomon, and Joshua, and applies them in a prophetic manner to Joshua Christ. The writers of the Gospels did that very same thing. So the types and allegories in the historical events and in the lives of the figures of the Old Testament must have been understood by them as well. Along with them, Paul believed that things which happened to these historical individuals were described as they were in Scripture for the very reason that these men who were all chosen by Yahweh to be leaders of the children of Israel, were living examples of the Messiah which was to come. These examples are commonly called types. And many Christian students have long understood that at least some of the events in the lives of these men were indeed prophecies of Christ. But there are other such types in Scripture which are not related to specific events or the lives of specific individuals. For instance, some students, some students of Scripture have also correctly pointed out the fact that the significance and sequence of the feast days of ancient Israel foreshadowed the developing history of the relationship between the children of Israel and their Messiah. Feasts such as Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles all seem to have not only a spiritual, but also a prophetically historical significance to the assembly of the children of Yahweh. So the feast days are ostensibly a type or an example for the plan of redemption and reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh their God. And here we shall assert that this is also true of the Sabbath week which was given to the ancient children of Israel. When Moses wrote Genesis, it was not a book written from the beginning as a precise historical account of ancient times. Moses wrote Genesis perhaps around 1500 BC, give or take a couple of decades, or according to the somewhat more accurate Septuagint chronology, about 4,000 years, or even 4,400 years, 
after the events described in its opening chapters actually took place. Ostensibly, there is a greater period of time between Adam and Moses than there is between Moses and our own time today. And I'm sorry, I was right with 4,000 years. And when Moses wrote Genesis, it was written as an allegory which contains both parables concerning the creation of God and types or examples expressing God's will for man. In Exodus chapter 31, Yahweh commands in a law that the Sabbath week is followed by the children of Israel, where it says, Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to Yahweh, wheresoever, I'm sorry, whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It is also quite evident that the Sabbath week was to be taken very seriously in the Old Kingdom. So therefore, when Yahweh God gave the children of Israel the laws by which they were to regulate themselves with his kingdom, he gave them the Sabbath week. And in order to demonstrate how important it was for his people to keep the Sabbaths, as an example of the Sabbath week, Moses had recorded a poetic description of the stages of Yahweh's creation after that same pattern. Therefore, the six-day account of creation is written in that manner as an example which God has made for man. But men should not perceive that Yahweh God is confined within the structure of the natural world in which man must abide. God does not suffer the boundaries of his creation, living inside of 24-hour days and fixed calendar months and years. So as it says in Genesis chapter 2, that on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. In the perception of man, Yahweh must still be in that period of rest. Here we shall see that was indeed the perception of Paul of Tarsus. In that manner, we read in Exodus chapter 20, For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. In this example which scripture gives to men, Yahweh continues to enjoy his period of rest, since he has not created any new works upon the earth in the manner of the creation of Genesis. That is the type or model which Paul offers here in Hebrews chapter 4 that while men are confined by the world in which they live, that God is nevertheless resting from all of his works. And therefore, when men are obedient to their God, they too shall have the opportunity to enter into his rest. Paul himself had already explained that the feasts and the Sabbaths of ancient Israel were indeed types 
in the manner in which we explain here, where he described the feasts and Sabbaths in Colossians chapter 2 as a shadow of things to come. And we should understand that a shadow in that sense is certainly what we call a type. So Paul said in that passage, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day, or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, quoting the King James Version. Here in Hebrews chapter 4, Paul explains how the Sabbath day is a type or a shadow of things to come. First, Paul had explained in Hebrews chapter 3 that if indeed his readers possessed the promises in the first place, they may take hold of the promise in Christ and become a partner of Christ. Making that explanation, citing Psalm 95, Paul inserts that the today of the psalm intends to mean the day of the coming of Christ. That certainly seems to be the intent as the psalm sung of Yahweh God as the rock of salvation, the great king, and the shepherd of the people. Therefore, upon this today which Paul references, the children of Israel are given a new opportunity to enter into partnership with their God, which their ancient ancestors in the Exodus had refused to enter into because of their disbelief. The psalm informs us that those who do not hear his voice shall not enter into his rest. So Paul is correctly taking the prophecy of the psalm and demonstrating its application and its consequences in relation to Yahshua the Messiah. In that manner, Paul continues here in chapter 4. And in verse 1 we read, Therefore, we should fear that at no time a promise being left to enter into his rest, which we will discuss shortly, any one of you would seem to have fallen short. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, as the children of Israel are about to enter into the land of Canaan, we read where it is said to them from verse 9, For you are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which Yahweh your God gives you. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which Yahweh your God gives you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety. However, this promise of rest was made under certain conditions such as which we read further on in that same chapter from verse 28. Observe and hear all these words which I command thee, that it may go well with thee, and with thy children after thee forever. And when thou doest that which is good and right in the sight of Yahweh thy God, then Yahweh thy God shall cut off the nations from before thee, whither thou goest to possess them. And now, succeedest them, and dwellest in their land. Take heed to thyself that thou not be snared by following them 
After that, they be destroyed from before thee, and that thou inquire not after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I do likewise. Thou shalt not do so unto Yahweh thy God. For every abomination to Yahweh which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters have they burnt in the fire to their gods. What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereunto or diminish from it. Throughout the biblical accounts of these subsequent centuries, at diverse times when the children of Israel were generally obedient to their God, they were given rest. But it was never for long, because they were never obedient for long. We read in Joshua chapter 21, And Yahweh gave them rest round about, from verse 44, according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. Yahweh delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught any of any good thing which Yahweh had spoken under the house of Israel. All came to pass. Then not long later, in Judges chapter 2, we see that the children of Israel failed to keep the conditions of the covenant of rest, where he said, I'm sorry, where we read, An angel of Yahweh came up from Gilgal to Boshim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of Yahweh spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. So the rest of the history of the children of Israel is founded upon this failure of the people to follow those conditions which would have assured them rest. Joshua, should, Joshua could not give them rest, but rather he gave them a warning, as it is recorded in Joshua chapter 24. And this is a long citation. Hopefully it will be worthwhile. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, and for their heads, or their chiefs, and for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. Even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And that term flood there actually refers to the river Euphrates. Abraham had come from the other side of the river Euphrates into the land of Canaan. Yahweh took Abraham out of the entire Adamic race which had turned to paganism, even the ancestors of Abraham himself. And Joshua continues, And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, meaning the Euphrates, and led him throughout all the land of Canaan, 
and multiplied his seed, and gave him Isaac. And I gave unto Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave unto Esau Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. And I sent Moses and also Aaron, and I plagued Egypt, according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came under the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen under the Red Sea. And when they cried unto Yahweh, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them, and covered them, and your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt, and you dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, which is recorded in the Telarmana tablets. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel, and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to Jordan, and came unto Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites. But not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you did not build. And you dwell in them, of the vineyards and olive yards which you planted, not do you eat. In other words, they didn't plant them, but they eat of them. Now therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood, the pagan gods, in the north in Mesopotamia, and in Egypt, and serve ye Yahweh. And if it seem evil unto you to serve Yahweh, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, this is Joshua doing the speaking, we will serve Yahweh. And the people, the people answered and said, God forbid that we should say, forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. For Yahweh is our God. He it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, which did those great things in our sight, and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And Yahweh drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelt in a land. Therefore we will also serve Yahweh, for he is our God. And Joshua said unto the people, You cannot serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake Yahweh and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that he has done you good. And the people said unto Joshua, No, but we will serve Yahweh. And Joshua said unto the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourself Yahweh to serve him. 
And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you, and incline your heart unto Yahweh God of Israel. And the people said unto Joshua, Yahweh our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and sent them a statute, a statute, not a statue, and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and took a great stone and set, up, set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it has heard all the words of Yahweh which he spoke unto us. It shall therefore be a witness unto you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart every man unto his inheritance. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnathserah, which is in Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. And Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived, that outlived Joshua, which had known all the works of Yahweh that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him in a hill that pertained to Phinehas, his son, which was given him in Mount Ephraim. And as soon as Joshua and the other elders died, we see the pattern of apostasy, which was described in the book of Judges, and which we have already seen here, citing Judges chapter 2, and the failures of the children of Israel to drive out their enemies. So Joshua, a type for the Messiah, was only a man who could not do the task which would eventually fall onto the shoulders of God himself in the person of another Joshua, which is Joshua Christ, as it is described in Isaiah chapter 53, where it says that Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, as we had explained, in part, in our last segment of this presentation, discussing the last verses of Hebrews chapter 3, the period of rest promised to the children of Israel was based on the original conditions which were explained by Joshua himself as the children of Israel were about to enter the land of Canaan, where he told them in Numbers chapter 14, the land which we pass through to search it is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against Yahweh, neither fear ye the people of the land. That's important. Neither fear ye the people of the land. For they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them. And Yahweh is with us. 
fear them not. And people don't understand that when you respect somebody of another race, you accept their gods. When you accept a nigger or an Arab or a Chinaman, you, in the eyes of our God, are accepting their gods. You cannot accept aliens because when you accept aliens, you accept their gods. You become an idolater. And that's something that's not even taught properly in Christian identity because even most so-called identity pastors don't get it. When you accept somebody of another race, you accept his gods who are not gods. All the gods of the heathens are idols. The children of Israel were told, fear them not. Which means don't respect them, don't reverence them, don't awe them, don't show them any respect. Just walk over them or buy them if you can't walk over them. We read in Judges chapter 6, just a couple of short chapters later, And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, because of the Midianites, that Yahweh sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, who said unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth from from out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drove them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am Yahweh your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Excepting the Amorites, they showed their fear for the gods of the Amorites. Therefore, they could not enter into his rest, and their continued rejection of his rest is described in Jeremiah chapter 6. Thus saith Yahweh, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not, we will not walk therein. However, the children of Israel are still promised that rest in Christ. So we read in the 132nd Psalm, For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for my anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. We also read of this period of rest in a prophecy of Christ, in Isaiah chapter 11. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and to it shall the nation seek, and his rest shall be glorious.
And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again for the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, meaning from the captivities of the children of Israel, and from Pathros and from Cush, and from Elam and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea, all the places where they were originally spread. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. There were two themes which Paul discussed in Hebrews chapter 3. Christ as the ruler over his own household, which are the same children of Israel, and their renewed opportunity to enter into his rest through obedience to him. This promise to enter into the rest of God which is a rest from the enemies of the children of Israel is the rest which is now made manifest in the gospel for which Paul continues. And in verse 2 for even we and this is a pretty important passage for even we have been announcing the good message, or the gospel, among ourselves, just as they also, referring to the children of Israel and their leaders at the time of Joshua. But the word of the report did not benefit those not being united in the faith with those who heard. Now, the Codex Sinaiticus has the later half of this verse to read that the word of report did not benefit it not being united in the faith with those who heard, which the King James Version seems to have followed. The King James Version treated the second verse of this passage as a passive verb, where it has, unto us was the gospel preached. But first there is another Greek verb, esmen, which is, we are, that's what it means. It's the second person plural, present plural form of the verb to be, which we say in English as we are. There is no pronoun for us, and the verb is not passive. Rather, the we is doing the action described. We have been announcing the good message, not the gospel was announced to us. The second verb is an aorist plural parsable form of you agalizomahi, which is the medium voice where, the pro where properly the initiator of the action of the verb is also the recipient. And for that reason, we have written announcing the good message among ourselves, where Paul says, just as they also, he refers to the word of Yahweh announced among the ancient Israelites by Joshua and the other elders of the people when they first had the opportunity to enter into the rest of their God. So Paul is preaching the same gospel that the elders of ancient Israel had preached. And he is preaching it to the same people, whether they be Romans or Hebrews or Corinthians, or Galatians, or otherwise. All of the nations which Paul went to are the children of Israel, descended from the seed of Abraham. 
and he says in verse 3, For we who are believing enter into that rest, just as he spoke. So I have sworn in my wrath, whether they should enter into my rest. And indeed, those works have been done from the foundation of the society. The Papyrus 13 and the Codex Alexandrinus want the word for weather here, where we would, where we would substitute the word that. As we have said when Paul quoted this same verse in Hebrews chapter 3, the citation is from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. Paul cited verse 11 in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 3, and we discussed it there when we presented that chapter at great length. We will discuss it here at length again. Because the ancient children of Israel refused to be obedient to Yahweh their God, they were precluded from entering into the rest that he had promised them on the condition that they were obedient. The promise of rest was on the condition that they were obedient and pushed the other races out of their way when they entered the land of Canaan. Here Paul is using this as a warning to the Hebrews of his own time. Since the children of Israel are once again offered that state of rest if they choose to be obedient to Christ. But Paul's analogy here, and this is important to understand, Paul's analogy here has nothing to do with salvation in reference to life after death or eternal life. Rather, in verse 12 here, Paul says that the word of Yahweh is living and active. The commission of the Israelites of the Old Testament was to establish the kingdom of Yahweh on earth, and they failed. Likewise, the Christian commission is for the descendants of those same Israelites to establish the kingdom of Yahweh on earth, and not merely in heaven. As we see in Luke chapter 11, that Christians are taught to pray to their God that thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven on earth, or as the King James Version says, as in earth, on earth as it is in heaven. I'm sorry, as the prayer book says, when we repeat the prayer called the Our Father in childhood. In obedience to Christ, Christians are promised rest from their enemies and from being judged by the world. Let us once more see the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will perform this. The throne of David is on earth and not in heaven. It's never been in heaven. The kingdom of the Messiah is an organization of the very same people whom David had ruled over. The government is the government is the kingdom of God on earth which was proclaimed by Christ in the gospel of the kingdom for the gathering of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Christ said in Matthew chapter 24, 
and the King James Version likes to omit the definite article, but the definite article certainly belongs. And this good message, or this gospel of the kingdom, shall be proclaimed in the whole inhabited earth for a testimony to all the nations, meaning particular nations, the nations which were descended from the same children of Israel, which Paul describes in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For this reason, as it is described in the book of Acts, once the warden of the jail where Paul and Silas were kept realized the power of Yahweh, the God of Paul and Silas, when the earthquake had opened the doors of his jail, he went to Paul and inquired what it was that he must do to be saved. The jailer, who was about to slay himself, fearing what would happen if any of the prisoners escaped, was a Roman pagan. Therefore he had no consciousness of the possibility of eternal life in Jesus. He only sought earthly salvation from the punishment that he expected, for which he nearly killed himself. So we read in Acts chapter 16, At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, praising Yahweh. And the prisoners were listening to them. Then suddenly a great earthquake came, so as to shake the foundations of the jailhouse. And immediately all of the doors were opened, and all the fetters let go. And the jailer, coming from sleep and seeing the doors of the prison opened, because he thought he would be convicted of incompetence, drawing a sword was about to slay himself believing the prisoners to have fled away. But with a great voice, Paul cried out, saying, Do nothing evil to yourself, for we are all here. And requesting a light, he burst in and came, trembling, and fell before Paul and Silas. And leading them outside, he said, Masters, what is necessary for me to do that I be saved, that he be preserved here in this life? And they said, Believe in the prince, Joshua, and you and your house shall be saved. The jailer being the head of the house, if he chose to keep the commandments of Christ, then the household would follow by necessity. That's the way a patriarchy works, and Rome was a patriarchal society. Turning to Christ, the jailer and his household would ostensibly keep the commandments of Christ, and that is the way to preservation in this life, by which the children of Israel can hope to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. Then they will indeed have rest. Paul continues his analogy in the offer of rest made to Israel. In verse 4, somewhere he spoke in this manner concerning the seventh day, and Yahweh rested in the seventh day from all of his works. And saying somewhere, Paul seems to once again reveal that he is citing scripture from memory without having a copy of scripture at hand. The citation is from the opening verses of Genesis chapter 2. And Paul continues in verse 5. And with this again, whether they should enter into my rest. And once again, Paul Paul cites Psalm 95, verse 11, and directly equates the rest 
of Psalm 9511 to the Sabbath rest of Genesis chapter 2. This also demonstrates that if the children of Israel have an opportunity to enter into the rest of Genesis chapter 2, then Yahweh himself remains in that same allegorical period of rest. Therefore, those who would uphold the very peculiar contention that Yahweh God began a separate act of creation on some imagined eighth day of creation are not telling the truth. As it says in Exodus chapter 20, For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So there is no supposed eighth day creation, as the creation of Adam described in Genesis chapter 2 is only a recapitulation of the creation of Adam, which was described in Genesis chapter 1, and again in that same manner it is recapitulated in Genesis chapter 5. Of course it can be proven in many other ways that there was only one Adamic creation described in scripture, but that is beyond the scope of this discussion and something which we have already presented and proven in detail in our Pragmatic Genesis series found in the podcasts at Christogenia. Paul continues his assertion that the psalm demonstrates that the promise of rest remains open for those who turn to God in Christ in verse 6 of this chapter, Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly heard the good message, or the gospel, did not enter in on account of incredulity, or disbelief in some manuscripts, again he determines a certain day. In David saying, Today, after so long a time, just as it is said beforehand, Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In verse 6, Paul repeats the assertion that the gospel of Joshua and the elders of Israel was the same gospel being announced by the apostles of Christ. Then, here in verse 7, Paul cites from Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, which he had also cited along with verse 11 of that psalm in Hebrews chapter 3. And here we see another revealing aspect of Paul's view of Scripture. The people of Israel had formerly heard the good message, meaning that the ancient Israelites were hearing the gospel in the days of Joshua the son of Nun. And then, as Paul explains where he cites the psalm, he determines a certain day, in David saying, Today, where we learn that in Christ, the gospel is for those same people to have another opportunity for obedience to him. From the time of Joshua, to the time of David, to the time of Christ, the gospel message is a consistent message for the children of Israel to be obedient to Yahweh their God, and in that manner to obtain rest and deliverance from their enemies, who also happen to be people, just about everybody else. 
So we read in Luke chapter 1 that the purpose of the gospel of Christ was the same as the was the same as the purpose that Yahweh had for the children of Israel in the days of Joshua the son of Nun. Where it says in words attributed to Zechariah the father of John the Baptist, Blessed be Yahweh the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, not saved with our enemies. We're not going to convert our enemies to Christianity, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. As we have seen, the ancient children of Israel failed. However, it is they who continue to have a hope to ultimately achieve that rest in Christ, for which Luke had recorded those words of Zechariah which are written in his gospel. The gospel of Moses and of Joshua is therefore the gospel of Luke and of Paul, ostensibly because that is also the gospel of Yahweh and of his Christ. There is only one gospel in scripture, and it is the same from Moses to the Revelation. So Paul continues in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken concerning another after that day. So a period of rest remains for the people of Yahweh. And the identity of the people of God has not changed. In this manner, Paul is explaining why the psalm, written by David perhaps 500 years after the time of Joshua, still made the offer of rest to the children of Israel, which was finally being made possible in Christ. The very, I'm sorry, the name Joshua is the very same name, Jesus in Greek, for which we have written Yahshua everywhere else in the Christogenian New Testament, except in Acts 7.45. And one or two other places where other people with the same name appear where we variated the spelling to distinguish those people from Yahshua Christ. Jesus is the Greek form of the name, which is also found in the Septuagint, wherever the Old Testament Joshua is mentioned in Scripture. Therefore, here, to distinguish Paul's reference to Joshua the son of Nun from Yahshua, or Jesus Christ, we have spelled it in the manner traditionally found in the King James Version Old Testament. But they are still the same name. Joshua is Joshua because the J sound in English wasn't distinguished until the 16th century. J as a letter was not distinguished by printers until the 16th century. It was an I before that. 
Joshua and Yahshua are the same name. In this verse of Hebrews, however, the King James Version has Jesus. There is one other place in the New Testament where the name Jesus appears in reference to Joshua the son of Nun, and there, in Acts chapter 7, verse 45, the King James Version also has Jesus. The phrase, period of rest here, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, is from the word sabbatismos, Strong's number 4520, which only appears here in the New Testament. It is a transliteration into Greek of a Hebrew word, and it properly refers to a Sabbath-keeping. Sabbatismos means that of the Sabbath. It may have been written, so a Sabbath-keeping remains for the people of Yahweh. Once again, it becomes evident that the people Paul had in mind, where he spoke of this Sabbath-keeping, are the same people of the Old Testament to whom the Sabbath was given. As it is evident throughout all of his epistles to the nations, Paul is teaching reconciliation theology, and Paul had no concept of modern so-called replacement theology, which is a lie developed recently by churches based on a historical misunderstanding concerning the, true, the identity of the true children of Israel the identity of the true people of God. This also demonstrates the fact that the Sabbath week kept in a law from day to day was created as a type for the overall history of the people. And that type has a transcendental significance as well. While the main force of Paul's arguments here had to do with the physical world and the establishment of the kingdom of Yahweh on earth, there is a spiritual aspect which cannot be denied. The following is from the King James Version of Revelation chapter 14, from verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in Yahweh from henceforth, or in the Lord, or in Christ from henceforth. Yeah, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So this period of rest certainly seems to also indicate a spiritual rest. However, the period of rest which Paul speaks is also evident in the Revelation, although the rest promised to Israel in Christ has not yet been fully achieved. So here is another digression. As we explained at length in Christreich, in our commentary on the Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 is a prophecy of the fall of Imperial Rome, 
In that chapter, we read a description of those who had the testimony of God. And the white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, and the word were is added into the text, should be fulfilled. In that same presentation of our commentary on the Revelation, which we call Christ-like, we explain how Revelation chapter 20 describes the thousand-year period of relative peace that Christian Europe enjoyed when the Jews were ostracized from society. Going back to Revelation chapter 6, we may see that the thousand-year period, we may see that thousand-year period as the fulfillment of the statement that they should rest yet for a little season in verse 11 of chapter 6. The thousand years began as the Jew was ostracized in a process which started in the 6th century to the time of Charlemagne at the end of the 8th. And Satan was loosed from the pit in the process by which the Jews gained their emancipation from the end of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th. While that thousand year period was not perfect, Christendom nevertheless prevailed over all their enemies, and neither Jew nor Muslim could penetrate Central or Western Europe with any lasting success. Although they never ceased in their attempts for the conquest of Christianity. There is something else which we never really mentioned before but which is interesting to point out, so we'll do it here. We would not teach it as a doctrine, but it may be more than a coincidence. Understanding the Septuagint chronology is much more accurate than what is found in the Masoretic text, and understanding that a thousand years is but a day to Yahweh, as the Apostle Peter professed. We can determine that the seventh thousand-year period of the history of the Adamic race, which began in, which began around 600 A.D., because Adam, according to the Septuagint chronology, was created about 5400 B.C. The seventh thousand-year period of the history of the Adamic race corresponds to the placing of Satan into the allegorical pit. So the so-called millennium of the Revelation corresponds to a millennial Adamic Sabbath. Apparently, from multiple aspects, the Sabbath week is indeed a type illustrating the purpose of God for his people. However, emerging, emerging from that Sabbath week, we find ourselves in the prophecy time of Jacob's trouble. While this may be an example, it is clear that Paul informs us that this prophesied period of rest continues to await the children of Israel. And the millennium, the rule of Christ, was the first restoration, was a type for the coming kingdom of heaven on earth. Paul continues in, Verse 10, he who is entering into his rest, he would also rest from his works as Yahweh from his own. 
As we have asserted here from the start, the stages of creation as they are explained in Genesis are a type for the Sabbath week, and the Sabbath week is a type of Yahweh's plan for his children, that once they are obedient to him, they will enjoy the period of rest from their toils as he is enjoying that same period. And Paul continues in that manner in verse 11. Therefore we should be eager to enter into that rest, lest anyone would fall into that same pattern of incredulity. According to Liddell and Scott, the word spudazzo is to be busy or eager or zealous or earnest to do a thing. Where the King James Version has, let us labor, the meaning is only inferred, we should be eager. Rather than pattern of incredulity, one papyrus has pattern of disbelief. The Codex Claromontanus rather strangely has pattern of truth, and, and that is incredulous. I had to mention the error, but it is probably a scribal error. Falling into a pattern of incredulity or disbelief causes one to go astray into sin and ultimately to suffer the punishment which results from sin. The eternal life of the Spirit is another matter entirely, as even Paul had said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that he had delivered certain men who perverted the faith unto Satan, that they learn not to blaspheme. Likewise, Paul had written to the Christian community at Corinth, Speaking of a fornicator, admonishing them to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So incredulity and sin prevent the children of Israel from establishing the kingdom of Yahweh their God on earth, which is what Yahweh demands of them. They shall be punished until they finally comply, which is the entire theme of the scripture. For example, and I could quote Amos 3, 2 again, or Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. For example, in Hosea chapter 12, the word of Yahweh says, Yahweh has also a controversy with Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. The entry of the Israelites into the land of Canaan also now serves as a type or example for the Christian people of God today. If the Israelites were obedient to Yahweh their God, the promised land is a type for the national rest that they should have had, free from war with their enemies and free to enjoy the fruits of their own labors. It is not that they would be free from labor, but they would be free to keep for themselves what they had labored for. For that reason, the warnings of disobedience promise the contrary as a punishment. For instance, where they say in Deuteronomy chapter 28, that, from verse 30, Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. So all of the fooling around that we see in society today is basically a punishment for past sins. Thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell therein. Thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shalt not gather the grapes thereof. 
thine ox shall be slain before thine eyes, and thou shalt not eat thereof. Thine ass shall be violently taken away from before thy face, and shall not be restored to thee. Thy sheep shall be given unto thine enemies, and thou shalt have none to rescue them. And today's society is a little more sophisticated, but today we have oppressive taxes and welfare programs for the aliens, and that is basically the equivalent of your ass and your sheep being taken away and given to your enemies. It's the equivalent when you lose half of your paycheck to taxes and some nigger collects a $1,200 a month welfare check, your ass and your sheep was taken away from you and given to the nigger. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto other people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long. And there shall be no might in thine hand. In other words, you won't be able to do a damn thing about it. The fruit of thy land and all thy labor shall a nation which thou knowest not, like a bunch of Mexicans, eat up, and thou shalt only be oppressed and crushed always, so that thou shalt be mad for the sight of thine eyes which thou shalt see. And you realize that every time you go to your Facebook page and you see all these memes about niggers and Mexicans and what they're doing to us, and it makes you mad, but you can't do a damn thing about it. These warnings and others in that scripture are national punishments resulting from sin which the Christian children of Israel, the white race of today, are also currently suffering because they have once again become incredulous towards the word of their God. So we have oppressive taxes to take away our homes and our goods, and we are surrounded by aliens who help themselves to our daughters and our sons, as well as to our wealth, and there is no way that we could resist. But there is a way out, and Paul begins to describe it. The word of Yahweh is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as a division of life and spirit, of both joints and marrows, and critical of the devices and notions of the heart. Dividing life and spirit is what happens when, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, one is involuntarily delivered to the adversary for the destruction of the flesh, avoiding that fate and repentance from sin. Dividing life and spirit is what happens when, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The word of Yahweh to the fleshly mind should be as joints are to the marrows of a bone, which allow the whole body to be held together as one. Making the word of Yahweh one with his own mind, then the spiritual man can inhabit his fleshly body in relative peace. If we profess that Yahweh God created the world, and everything in it by his word, and gave the ancient children of Israel laws to live by that had efficacy in this world, 
And Christ came to uphold those same commandments which are found in the law. The gospel of Christ being the same gospel which was preached by the ancient patriarchs of Israel. How can we imagine the laws in the word of Yahweh have no efficacy in the world today? Where Paul quotes, Today, if you will hear his voice, in reference to both ancient Israelites and the Hebrews of his own time, how can we imagine that has changed at all today? If the children of Israel choose to obey their God, they shall indeed enter into his rest. Once enough of the children of Israel obey God, the kingdom of heaven materializes on earth. As Paul had written to the Romans in the closing verses of his epistle to them, they being of Abraham's seed, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4 and many other places, now with ability you are to stand fast in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ. In accordance with the revelation of mystery, having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now through the prophetic writings, so this isn't anything that the prophets don't explain, in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith to all the nations, in discovering that Yahweh alone is wise, through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages, truly. The mystery of which Paul spoke was the identity of the nations of the blind lost sheep of the children of Israel, who had been put off by God in punishment. Here he talks to Hebrews, Israelites, who had maintained their historical identity. So he talks from an entirely different perspective. However, the gospel, while Paul explains it here from a different perspective, is nevertheless one and the same gospel, demanding obedience of the children of Israel to Yahweh their God through Christ. And he says in verse 13, and there is not an act unnoticed before him, but all things, naked and laid open to the eyes of him, before whom with us is the word. I'm going to include the Greek of this passage and place our English translation in brackets after each word or phrase so that people could go on to the website and see the text of this program and view a more or less interlinear translation of this verse. We do not understand how the King James Version arrives at the translation of this verse which says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Of him with whom we have to do is kind of strange. Here we would insert, I'm sorry, here we would assert, looks like I was a victim of spell check or something. Here we would assert that in the context of this verse, the context of this verse is found in the verse which precedes. 
Where Paul mentioned the word of God and the notions of the hearts of men, Paul is speaking about the acts of men and not of creatures, as the other translations render the word kitesis here, or at least the King James Version and the Authorized Standard, or, or the NASB, I believe, the New American Standard Bible. According to Liddell and Scott, the word kitesis means a founding or a foundation first, and secondly it means a doing or an act, albeit loosely, and third a creating or, in the New Testament, the creation of the universe, but it's just a creating. You do a kitesis if you're a painter and make a work of art, or if you're a sculptor and, and make a statue, that's a kitesis done by you. It can also refer to that which was created, the kitesis, the creation. It's just a common word. It has no special religious significance every time it is used. Here it just means an act. Paul's talking about the notions of the hearts of men in, in the verse before this. The context has not changed. According to Liddell and Scott, the preposition pros primarily means to or toward, or also before or in the presence of someone or something. And Paul is only saying that the acts of men are laid bare before the eyes of God, and that in the presence of God, the word of God is with men. That's what he's saying at the end of this verse, that... All things, meaning all of those acts, are naked and laid open to the eyes of him, before whom with us is the word. In other words, God knows that we have the Bible. God knows we have the scriptures. God knows we have the gospel. So Paul is once again warning these Hebrews that if they reject Yahshua as the Christ, who is described by that word of God which they have with them, that Yahweh God will see their disobedience. And in verse 14 he says, Therefore, having a great high priest, having passed through the heavens, Yahshua the son of Yahweh, we should hold fast that profession. Earlier in this epistle, Paul called Yahshua Christ the apostle and high priest of our profession. In the chapters which follow, Paul will associate Yahshua Christ to the Melchizedek priesthood, and explain how that is so much better than the Levitical priesthood. Doing so, he will cite the Psalms that also make such a prophecy. And we will reserve that for our discussion of the next chapter of this epistle. And Paul says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest having no ability to sympathize with our weakness, but who being tested by all things in like manner is without failure or without sin. And as Paul had already explained in Hebrews chapter 2, for surely not that of angels has he taken upon himself, but he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren, that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh, to make a propitiation for the failures of the people. In what he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to help those being tested. 
A judge who cannot judge men from their own perspective is not a righteous judge. Yet Yahshua Christ, being God incarnate in the flesh, and having faced the trials of fleshly life, in that manner God can indeed be the righteous judge of men. And Paul says in verse 16, concluding this chapter, So we should come with liberty to the throne of that favor, that we would receive mercy and we would find favor for opportune assistance. The apostles Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and James in chapters 1 and 2 of his epistle taught of the liberty that men have in Christ. Paul also taught those same things to the Israelites of the ancient dispersions in Romans chapter 8, in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and in Galatians chapters 2 and 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking of the books of Moses and explaining that they are Christian scriptures, speaking of those who continue to reject Christ, Paul said, Then until this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies upon their hearts. But when perhaps you should turn to the prince, meaning Christ, the veil is taken away. Now the spirit now the prince is the spirit, and where the spirit of the prince is, there is liberty. In his epistle to the Galatians, Paul had been explaining to them that the law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. Of course, the Galatians were descendants of the ancient Israelites, which had been carried off into Assyrian captivity. So Paul informed them that while they should return to Yahweh their God, in Christ they were nevertheless free of the rituals and ceremonies of the law. He made the analogy comparing the Levitical rituals and ceremonies of the law to the bondage of Hagar. Then in chapter 5 Paul exclaimed that in the liberty in which Christ has set us free, you stand fast indeed and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Referring to the rituals and ceremonies of the law. Then later, in that same chapter, Paul told the Galatians, For you have been called on to liberty, brethren, only not that liberty for occasion in the flesh, meaning that our liberty isn't to sin, but through love you serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one statement, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Here at the end of this last verse of Hebrews chapter 4, where Paul said that we would receive mercy and we would find favor for opportune assistance, the King James Version has that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, which is a fair translation. Saying that, Paul seems to be referring to the same brotherly love about which he had informed the Galatians where he said you have been called on to liberty, brethren, only not that liberty for occasion in the flesh, but through love you serve one another. That's the opportune assistance that we have in our liberty. We take our liberty and we help our brother, where under the Old Testament, in the rituals and ceremonies, we found our sense of justification by performing them. Now we should substitute brotherly assistance for the rituals and the ceremonies. 
It seems to us that through rituals and ceremonies, men find self-justification in the works of their own hands, and they become isolated from one another. But in the sacrifice which is in Christ, men do not need to rely on the works of their own hands for their justification, and should find it instead by following his example and sacrificing of themselves for their brethren as he had commanded his disciples to love one another as he had loved them. The word of Yahweh is living and active. When we ever start practicing it collectively, we can indeed begin to build the kingdom of heaven. But these Hebrews are also convinced that they should continue in the rituals and ceremonies of the Levitical law. While Paul mentions the liberty which is in Christ here, later in his epistle he will explain those same consequences that he explained to the Galatians in a quite different manner. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. Tomorrow night, author Lee loves the world. But it's not what you think.